Um, I think we will kind of uh, look at kind of a large section here. Um, and just then kind of go through it, and then I want to show you something about this section. I think maybe that's the easiest way to do this. So, why don't we read 1 to 17 of Amos chapter 5. Hear this word which I pick up for you as a dirge, O house of Israel. She has fallen, she will not rise again, the virgin Israel. She lies neglected on her land, there is none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left. And the one which goes forth a hundred strong will have ten left in the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me that you may live, but do not res- resort to Bethel, <clears throat> and do not come to Gilgal, nor cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal will certainly go into captivity, and Bethel will come to trouble. Seek the Lord that you may live, lest he break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it consume with none to quench it for Bethel. For those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. He who made the uh, yes. Pleiades okay. and Orion <clears throat> and changed deep darkness into morning. Who also darkens day into night. Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. It is he who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they labor him, they, they abhor him who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you uh, impose heavy rent on the poor and exact tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of rough stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many, and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes, and turn aside the poor in the gate. Therefore, at such a time the prudent person keeps silent. <clears throat> for it is an evil time. Seek God and not evil that you may live. And thus, may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said, hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all the plazas and all the streets. They say, alas, alas, they will call the farmer to mourning and professional mourners to lamentation. And in all the venues there is willing, because I shall pass through your midst of you, says the Lord. Fine. So he starts out with a dirge for Israel. What's a dirge? Funeral song. Yes. Now, if there's a funeral song we're hearing for Israel, what does that mean? Yes. And she's being mourned already. That was probably disconcerting for Israel, kind of like reading your own obituary in the newspaper. Uh, you know, but that's what he said. It's so certain that the judgment is coming that we're already singing the morning funeral song. She's fallen, she will not rise again, nobody will raise her up. She's going to be decimated. You know, a city has a thousand, there'll be a hundred left. If it has a hundred, there'll be ten left. There's really nothing worthwhile left among Israel. That's why the death is a foregone conclusion and we're already singing the dirge. This is a very, uh, you know, pessimistic, I guess you could say. Comments and questions on 1 to 3. This is a little weird because they're doing well. So it's even more shocking and maybe hard to believe because they're doing well. That's a good point. Exactly right. 
Christ's daughter, Virgin Israel? Excellent question. Do you know? <laughs> she has never been destroyed. She's not been, like, raped. She's still, you know, untouched by the enemy destroying her. I think that's the point. But that won't last long. <laughs> she's about to, uh, she's about to get it. Appropriate counsel then, in verse 4, what should they do? Seek God to be able to live. I mean, here's the option. Problem is, we know she's not going to. But the right thing is, seek God and she can avoid the funeral. <laughs> seek God and she'll live. But then he says something very disturbing. But do not resort to Bethel. And do not come to Gilgal. Nor cross over to Beersheba. Those are the very places they would have gone to seek God. Certainly Bethel, with the golden calf, but Gilgal and Beersheba, from a number of prophetic references, seem to have been places of worship, places of idol shrines or whatever. That'd be like saying, seek God, but don't go to church. You know, what would you think if somebody said that? Why not? Yeah, it would seem wrong. What do you mean, seek God and not go to church? It's where you find God. What do you mean, seek God, but don't go to Bethel? For them, that's the very place they'd seek God at. So he's saying, seek God, but not in these idol shrines. You know, because Gilgal and Bethel are going to come to trouble. Seek the Lord that you may live. Verses 4 and 5 were spoken by the Lord himself. Verse 6 by Amos. He speaks of the Lord in the third person. Seek the Lord that you may live. If they don't seek the Lord, what's going to happen to them? Yes, exactly. No difference really between the fire of God and it, as an instrument of judgment for all the other nations and the fire of God burning up Israel. They are still going to be consumed uh, because of their wickedness. Now, this is a minor point, but in verse 5, do you notice the chiasm? Yes. yes, Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, Gilgal, Bethel. There's more chiasm here. Yes, I know, but I'm not there yet. You're talking about the overall chiasm? Yes. In the whole section? Yes. Yes, I would intend to talk about so, that. So, what is significant about Beersheba? Apparently it was a place of idol shrines or a place of, of false worship. Because that's the middle of the chiasm. Isn't that supposed to have a little more significant? Maybe so. But I don't have anything to say about that. And that's not much of a chiasm there either. Uh, kind of, you know, encouraging symmetry. I mean, you might even be able to say, seek Bethel, Gilgal, Bersheba, Gilgal, Bethel, seek. If you wanted to broaden out that chiasm. But I still not sure there's anything real striking in that other than just kind of symmetry. Now verse 7 tells you what their problem is. What's their problem? They don't value justice and righteousness. Where have we read that before in the prophets? 
Yeah, exactly. Man, it's just everywhere. God is so concerned with justice, with fair, righteous dealings between people. You know, we, that's, that's such a big theme that I think we probably ought to consider that more than what we do. God is not happy with them because they're not just and righteous. Their court system is warped by bribery and favoritism. And in their interpersonal dealings, they take advantage of each other. They take advantage of anybody they can. So they've turned justice into wormwood, into bitterness. They've thrown righteousness down. What is wormwood? It's, it's a bitter wood, I guess. And then, you know, the God who's saying all this, as we have several times in Amos, kind of gives a self-description, or, or Amos, you know, he describes him. This is no ordinary God you're dealing with. He's the God who made the Pleiades and Orion. Do you know he made those things? What are they? Constellations. Constellations, yeah. He's the God that, that made the big constellations of stars. He changes darkness into morning. He darkens the day and the night. He, he controls the light and the dark, the day and the night. He, uh, you know, he, they have changed justice into wormwood. It's probably a... Uh, uh, it's probably a... Uh, they do these tests of the warning siren systems that down here at the firehouse. And you hear them all the time. If there was ever anything bad coming, you'd never know it because they test it constantly. <laughs> this is like exactly 1 o'clock, so I'm sure they've got some test schedule, but they do it all the time. And I almost never hear them for a real warning, so <laughs> kind of silly, but but it's right over, right across the way here, so we hear them pretty strong here. This is sort of paralleling what was in chapter 4. Yes, it, it is. It's the same kind of statement about, you know, think about the God that you're, you're going to deal with. I mean, he's the God that pours the waters out. The Lord is his name. He's the true Jehovah, the true I am, the true self-existent ones. One, he, he, the one who controls the constellations and the day and night is the God who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong in verse 9 and upon the fortress. You know, this God is well able to deal with anything man thinks is strong. I mean, what does puny man think he can do in defying the great God who made the stars? I mean, we're nothing compared to him. There's no human fortress. I mean, you know, think about how, you know, little kids play with, you know, I don't know, little blocks or Legos or whatever. And you can just take your little finger and flick them. And they come crashing down. But God can take his little finger and flick it and knock the earth clear out of its orbit. Let alone these little puny fortresses they've made. Comments and questions through verse 9? So he's telling them again what they've done wrong in 10 to 13. What have they done wrong? They almost hate righteousness. Yeah, and they hate the one who reproves in the gate. In the gate? It's in the gate. Isn't that where like somebody would go to uh, proclaim something? or? Yes. All their business was done. In court, I think here maybe the court being held is the is the thing he's keying in. All those things are true. 
about the gate. It was, uh, but but here I think probably the judge who rebukes them, they hate. You know, they don't want to hear the truth. They abhor him who speaks with integrity. <laughs> That's always bad. You don't like the guy who tells the truth. <laughs> yeah. That's not a good sign. Um, I see it every day at school. Yeah. That's the way this nation is now. Yeah, and probably the way people have been ever since the Garden of Eden, it seems to be. Uh, sometimes it can be the way we are. You know, how do we like it when the truth is told to us, when we're reproved justly? In verse 11, what were they doing? Reading. Yeah, trying to take advantage of the poor, and, uh, and, and therefore God is going to turn the tables on these who've been getting rich at other people's expense. They're going to build houses and somebody else is going to live in them. They're going to plant vineyards and somebody else is going to drink their wine. It's kind of appropriate punishment. You are taking things from other people, so they're going to take things from you. And uh, again in verse 12, what were they doing? Stress the righteousness. Yes, and accept bribes. They are perverting the legal process. Um, I'll tell you, I wonder if there's not a lesson in all the injustice and bribery passages for special interest money in our government. You know, wow. The more you hear and find out, the more outrageous it is how many, you know, people in government are on the take from different, whatever, special interest companies, whatever, and they give all these special contracts or, 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 or things like that. Injustice. You know, bribery. Just corruption. At, at high levels. And uh, it's just exactly what you see here. The things aren't being dealt with on the base of fairness and justice and righteousness. And rather ironically, he says in verse 13, therefore at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent for it's an evil time. I think you'd speak out in a case like this. But he says the prudent person keeps silent. Why? Well, if they're not going to listen anyway, they may. You, sometimes you feel like, what's the point in speaking? You know, you, you know, just what's the use? Won't do any good. What will it do if you speak? Get you killed. Yeah, exactly. He's saying if you if you're looking out for yourself, your best bet is to be quiet because they're not going to listen and they'll just turn against you. Isn't that a shame? Because I mean, when, once it gets to be that way then they don't even benefit by the possibility of being corrected. Because everybody knows you better not say anything against them. They'll resent it. They'll, 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 get, they'll come back and get you. But we're supposed to say something about it anyway. Yes. Yes, although it's gotten to the point where I think God's about ready to uh, throw the book at them and quit talking to them and just punish them. But I think he's mostly saying this is how resentful they are of the truth. <clears throat> You know, they listen. That's kind of odd. The normal translation in here says, um, therefore, he who is prudent. Sometimes being prudent isn't the best course of action. 
Yeah, but in this, yeah, but in this case, he's he's really trying to make a statement about them, not about the people. Yeah, exactly. He's always saying, you know, the smart guy just keeps his mouth shut in this situation because it'll, you know, they they won't listen and they will, you know, resent him. Not so much that he's trying to tell you don't speak out. Obviously, Amos is speaking out. <laughs> but he's saying, you know, for all the good it's going to do, you'd be better off just being quiet. Maybe Amos feels that way by this time. So we're not, no, so then in that case he's basically saying we're not supposed to, are we not say anything about it at all? Because that's what this, whole, this verse seems to be saying. Well, I think verse 12 is really not telling you whether to speak or not to speak. I think it's telling you, if you know what's good, yeah, if you, 13, if you know what's good for you, you better keep shut, keep your mouth shut. Because these people are so wicked. <clears throat> they'll they'll, they'll turn around and, and hurt you. Not trying to recommend or not recommend, you know, exposure of this, but just saying these are the consequences of speaking the truth. Yeah, because in 2.12 it said that he commanded the prophets saying, you know, prophesy in chapter 5, verse 10, they hate the one who rebukes and the gate, and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. So again, the point is, no matter what you say, they're not going to listen. That's the kind of people are. That's how hard-hearted they are. God will have to, had a great aunt that I always used to, her old saying was, if you won't listen, you have to feel. <laughs> I like that. I'm saying, so they're going to have to feel. I mean, God's already said, I've done this to you. I've already did this and this, and you didn't return to me, so, I mean, they're just at a point, really, of, of no return. It almost might be, uh, don't cast your pearls before swine, yeah, yeah. you know, give that which is holy to the dogs. Is there, I mean, in, in some senses, isn't there a time to quit speaking, and even quit rebuking, to shake the dust off your feet, and go on? And I mean, maybe that's part of this, is, you know, uh, eventually, does it do any good to keep beating your head against a wall? Have you ever tried? I mean, have you ever seen somebody who's just bound to determine that some loved one will be converted? And so, I mean, they are on them all the time, all the time, all the time. I'm going to convert this person. Well, I mean, some people aren't convertible. You know, and you're not going to do it no matter how much you say. And eventually you might as well cut your losses and go on to somebody who listens. So, in the sense, maybe, in that sense, you could even apply this to, you know, you might as well keep, keep your mouth shut. But I think it's mostly the rebuke on the character of the people who won't listen to the prudent person. I think sometimes, so basically, you have to know when to, one, give up, if it's just one person, give up and move on. Or if it's just everybody to just stop talking, just be an example. Yeah. Certainly, uh, you know, I mean, we've got shake the dust off your feet and things like that that would indicate there comes a time. Go on. Maybe somebody else will listen. Um, going back to verse 11, this is a fairly easy question. I think I know the answer, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, <laughs> I like easy questions. Uh, when it says in verse 11, though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you should not dwell in them. That's just saying he's going to punish them and take them away from their own land, right? Yes. Okay. They won't, or, or at least take them away from their houses. They won't be able to live in, in, in what they built. That's a typical prophetic statement. They call these the futility curses. You know, you do all this work and then you don't get to enjoy it. And you see that fairly often 
in, in the Old Testament. Even in the historical narrative somewhat, you know, uh, the Canaanites did all this, and then, then the Israelites got to enjoy it. So not necessarily a, you're going to be put into captivity, I'm going to take you out of your houses, but more of a, you worked for all this. And yes, exactly, okay. exactly. Yeah, it's a typical prophetic statement. All right, then he comes back again in verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live, and God will be with you. That's what you got to do. He had said to seek God back in uh, verse 4 and verse 6, but how do you seek God? Well, you've got to do good. You've got you've to do what's right. You can't seek God and not do right. I mean, that, that doesn't fit. That doesn't work. You've got to go back and establish justice in the gate. You know, be righteous in your governmental affairs. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to who? The remnant. Because most of the nation, the, the, the punishment's coming on most of them. The hope is maybe God will be gracious to the remnant. We still have to talk Judah and Israel here, or just Israel? Well, Joseph would be just Israel. Uh, right? Yeah. Because Joseph... What, was there a tribe of Joseph? No, Manasseh and Ephraim. Exactly. These were his two sons. He got the double portion. And Manasseh and Ephraim were what? Those were the dominant tribes in the north. Especially Ephraim, right? So, you know, calling him Joseph is really more for the northern kingdom, I would say. Uh, so there's this whole session, section is just referring to Israel. Yeah, I think most of this is mostly Israel, although I think a lot of this ap- applies to Judah as well. How much of a remnant was left of Israel? Because I know that when the Assyrians came, they mostly just took them out of their lands and put them into different lands. So referring to a remnant in the city, in the nation of Israel, or remnants everywhere, what is it referring to there? I don't know if I know. I mean, I don't know that he's trying to define that. Okay. And then, in verse 16, you hear the wailing everywhere. A calling to the mourners to lament. In the vineyards, there's wailing. You know, I'll pass through the midst of you. Back in the uh, Exodus, where did God pass? Over them, but he's going right through the midst of them. Destroying them. You know, uh, they may not have sought the Lord, but the Lord's going to find them. (laughs) And he's going to punish them. So, uh, that brings me to the extended chiasm in this passage. I really ought to have had a board, but y'all are imaginative. Look at this passage and how chiastic it is. We're going to look from the beginning, we're going to start in the beginning and the end and work our way toward the middle. Okay? So, in one through three, what do you have? Yeah, the funeral song. In 16 and 17, what do you have? Yeah, the wailing. So both of them are the lament, the funeral song, the wailing over the death. Both 1 to 3 and 16 and 17. Now move in one. In 4 through 6, the theme is? Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord so you can live. And in 14 and 15, the theme is? Seek good. Seek good so that you can live. You see that? So it goes from lament, seek God that you can live, and then at the end it's seek good and live and lament. And then in verse 7, what is this? 
The theme is... Injustice. They're injustice. And in 10 to 13, the theme is... They're injustice. Their sins. Their, their wickedness. And so then, that leaves the middle of this, 8 and 9. And 8 and 9 is about what? The greatness of God. And in the middle of that, the Lord is His name. Not the absolute middle, but... So, lament... See God live in justice. The great God, the Lord is his name. The great God, in justice, seek good and live, lament. I think that's there. I don't think that one's contrived. You don't think any of yours are contrived. You don't know how many hundred <laughs> I read that I reject. I like you. Many commentators find chiasms in absolutely every paragraph that exists in the Bible. I think they're crazy. But this one, I think, is there. Probably wouldn't have said it. I, I just, it's just so obvious. This is one you'd almost see if you didn't have somebody pointing it out to me. To you. Anyhow. Comments and questions on anything through 517? Well, 18 to 20. <coughs> Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leaves his hand against the wall, and the snake bites him. <laughs> will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom and no brightness? Ariel read that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so, they were longing for the day of the Lord. Why would they be longing for the day of the Lord? <coughs> Deliverance from their enemies? Of course! Boy, won't this be great? We want the Lord to come down and smash these wicked people. You know, I mean, don't people think that today? Why well, wish the Lord just come and deal with those people? You know, uh, we're ready to have his him come down and, and, and really clean house. What was the problem? They are the enemy. Yeah. What purpose? Well, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? Guys, wake up. What's it going to be like for you? It'll be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion into the arms of an outstretched bear, right? <laughs> or goes home, lays his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. It's just all the luck. I mean, you know, can you imagine that? I mean, really, that is hilarious to think about. Yeah, I've never met a lion, and I don't know if I'd be fast enough to outrun him. But man, fleeing from a lion and there you go, go right into a bear, that would be terrible. <laughs> or somehow you manage to escape both, you get inside your house, slam and lock the door, lean up against the wall exhausted, and a snake comes out of the wall and bites you. You can't get away from God. <laughs> this is a, we have a colloquial expression for that. Out of the frying pan into the fire. And that the idea, you know, any way you look at it, the Lord's there. The day of the Lord will be devastating to them. And he keeps saying it will be darkness, 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 guys. They were, this is so different than they were expecting. 
it's just like, you know, remember, it's not going to be the light you think it'll be. For you, it'll be darkness. Comments and questions? I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters, and let and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for forty years, O house of Israel? You also carried along Sukkoth, your king, and Kion, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. All right, there... Wow, this is these are passages in the prophets that I think would be thought of as quite shocking. What was he saying here? What was he rejecting? What they were trying to offer him. Which was what? Yeah, that's exactly right. Like what? Sacrifices. Sacrifices. And Festivals. Festivals, feast days, and solemn assemblies, and songs. songs of praise, and, and worship with the harps, and I mean, wow! You wouldn't expect God to say, I hate this stuff. I mean, can you imagine God coming down today and saying, I abhor your every Sunday Lord's suppers. And I hate your acapella worship music. And, you know, I can't stand your giving on the first day of the week. I mean, how would you feel about that? It's like, but, 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 but this is what we're supposed to do. I mean, this is just, you know, it doesn't seem so bad to us because we don't, you know, worship in this way. But for them, he's taking up every one of the essential elements of their worship and saying, I can't stand it, guys. And he actually, I love the way he does this, he uses every one of his senses. In verse 21, nor do I literally, in my margin, nor do I like to smell your solemn assemblies. (laughs) Uh, So he uses his sense of smell, and then he doesn't accept the burnt offering, the grain offerings. Perhaps you should think of, he he won't receive them. He won't even touch them. And then he won't look at their peace offerings, into verse 22. And he won't listen to the sound of their harps, verse 23. So he closes off his sense of smell, touch, sight, and hearing. God is, is just numb to what they're trying to do. He won't, he won't receive any of it. And notice, it's your festivals, your solemn assemblies, your grain offerings, your fatlings, your songs, your harps, God won't even accept, he won't even dignify it with my sacrifice. It's yours. Now what in the world was going on here to cause God to reject all of this? Their injustice. Exactly. God hated their worship. 
because their lives were corrupt. He says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In contrast with momentary flow of water, they had in that area wadis, which were streams that dried up in the dry season. They, they went pretty good in the rainy season when the, when the snow was melting and things like that. But a wadi was like a, a creek that would dry up. And uh, he says, I want your justice and righteousness to be constant like a big river, not like a wadi that dries up every time you get in a tight spot. He wants justice and righteousness, righteousness to cascade through their lives, not just be intermittent. You know, what would you think if I said, you know, well, I, I only commit adultery every few days. The rest of the time I'm faithful to my wife. Wouldn't that be an outrageous statement to make? Now, you see people who almost act that way. But you don't consider it faithful if, if, if they're running around on you every few days. But do we consider it faithful to God if we are unfaithful to Him every few days? I mean, he says, I want you to really give me justice and righteousness. Not just every other day, but all the time. And if they won't, it's an abomination. I mean, what would you think? What, what would a woman think? If her husband was committing adultery on her every few days and she knew it, but he kept bringing her flowers. You know, kept bringing her chocolates. What would she think about that? Hypocritical, she despises. Yeah, wouldn't you? Can you imagine that? It would, it would be an abomination. Here's this, you know, idiot who won't be faithful to you, but he's trying to bribe you with some chocolates and flowers. Who does he think you are? You know, most women wouldn't stand for that. And it would almost make the chocolates and the flowers worse, knowing that it's totally insincere, it's totally hypocritical. It, it, it doesn't mean anything because if it meant something, he'd be faithful to her. If their worship meant something, they'd be faithful to God. It's not true. It doesn't come from a real heart. Not, not a pure heart. And I wonder if God wouldn't say the same thing to us. You know, if I can sing these beautiful songs and pray these elaborate prayers and then go home and act like a heathen, you know, I mean... Shouldn't we say, I mean, if, if we want to translate this into modern day, you know, talk about the singing and the Lord's Supper and the giving or whatever, and and yet we go home and lose our temper with everything from the dog to the wife. We, you know, look at everything we shouldn't look at on the TV and the internet. You know, we are dishonest in many things that we say. We cheat and 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 you know connive our way into a fortune, and you know so forth and so on. We'll use God's name in vain, and we'll you know abuse all kinds of substances. And all the while, we come before God and we sing our songs and we take our crackers and grape juice and all that. How would God feel? Well, he feels the same way a woman would feel about a husband like that. Comments and questions through twenty-four.
this last section, I'm still not sure I completely have the right take on this. I really need to study this out a little bit more strongly. I'll give you one possibility, but I'm not willing to uh, insist that it's the only one. Uh, did you present me with sacrifice and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? I think the idea may be that in the wilderness they didn't offer offerings. They didn't really have anything to offer. Certainly didn't have grain offerings. And and yet still, God was with them in the wilderness. Obviously, the essentials of their relationship with God weren't the sacrifices. That wasn't the essential thing. You also carried along these images, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. And maybe he's saying, you know, you haven't come very far, have you? You know, you were carrying around idols back then, you still are. So I'm going to send you into exile beyond Damascus. You haven't improved any. So I'm just going to send you where they worship those gods. But like I say, I'm I'm a little unclear about that section. So if you have some suggestions on that, I'll be glad to listen to them. So they didn't sacrifice in the wilderness? I don't think they did. They I'm not sure they could have. Do what? And God was okay with that. Yes, I think he was. So is he... I think he was... I think he's saying... I think he's saying in 25, you know... The sacrifice and offerings are not the essential part of your relationship with me. Look at the time in the wilderness when I blessed you even though you didn't do that. On the other hand, in the wilderness, you took along your idol gods and you still are, you know, and I'm finally fed up with that. Didn't they have the uh, tabernacle with them? Yes. At that time? Yes. So couldn't they sacrifice at the tabernacle or... Well, I mean, my question is, where would they get the material to sacrifice with, particularly the grain offerings and the drink offerings? I mean, about all they had in terms of, um, you know, crops was the manna. Thank you. That is that is a difficult verse. I wrote something down on the margin of my Bible, but it's one of those verses that, you know, it's wasn't really sure about. Homer Haley said something to the effect, he says, from the time of the wilderness wanderings to an extent, they had been essentially idolaters. Um, That's what I say about 26. 26. Is, is that quote in... Is, did, yeah, Amos 7. Oh, Acts 7. Yeah, in Acts 7. But I've forgotten what I thought it meant in Acts 7. So. <laughs> Acts 7, verse 42 and 43. I don't know. I need, to, I need to study over Acts 7 and Amos 5 more and come to better conclusions about that. Can you read what the New American Standard says in verse 26? It says, You also carried along Sikath your king, and Kayun your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. I got it. I suppose I 
it says the tent of Moloch and God Raphan. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that these were stars or planets or whatever, and um, back in verse 8, it says that God created them. Good point. Yeah, good point. So why worship them? Why not worship the God who created them? Yeah. All right, other questions and comments? That one we can puzzle over a little bit, perhaps. I guess when I read that, I kind of think, you know, just as they were sacrificing then, I guess they, they had the uh, idolatry, but I guess if they couldn't sacrifice, that wouldn't really work out then, right? Still worship idols without sacrificing children. Yeah. I don't know. How are we doing in temperature here? Too warm, too cold? The women are too cold, the men are too warm? So what do we want to do here? Do we need the fan? Do we want to open the windows? Are we okay? Okay. When you get too warm, it is now. Yeah, I know the sun comes through and all that. Well, if it gets too warm, you know, jump up and down. Well, it'll stir the air around and you know, ventilate us. Also makes the person doing the jumping a lot warmer too. Yeah, I will. Good point. All right, chapter six, verses one to seven. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. The distinguished men of the foremost of nations, to whom the house of Israel comes, go over to Kalma and look, and go from there to Hamath the Great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than yours? Do you put off the day of calamity, and would you bring near the seat of violence? Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches, and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the heart, and like David have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will not go in exile ahead of the exiles, and the sprawlers' banqueting will pass away. This maybe corresponds to chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Here he's talking maybe more about the men. And what's he condemning them for? Luxurious ease. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're too self-indulgent. They're too self-focused. <coughs> All their and, and to self-satisfy, you know, they're at ease in Zion. They feel secure. They're important. Uh, they're they're affluent, and they're they 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 don't have any hunger for anything. And and really, look at some of these other places that have been destroyed. You're no better than what they are. Do you think that that it won't happen to you? You know, so many times people feel like everybody else who has done what I do has gotten judged, but it won't happen to me. You know, I'll be exempt. You know, we don't we never see it happening to us. We never envision we'll suffer. And then he really describes them starting in verse four, and he describes them in what kind of terms? What do you see in verses four through six? 
luxury, whatever they want, but they don't see what's happened. Yes! Recline on beds of ivory, sprawl on their couches. Do you see that again? They're, these people are just very non-industrious. You know, they're reclining on their beds of ivory, sprawled out on their couches, doing what? Eating. Eating! Ooh. <laughs> Man, sounds more and more like us, doesn't it? You know, they're eating lambs from the flock, calves from the midst of the stall. I mean, they're getting the, the stall-fed calves and the lambs. And what else are they doing? Music? Yeah, they're all involved in music. I can just see them now. They've got their Walkmans and their iPods, <laughs> you know, stuck in their ears. You know, and and what are they doing in verse 6? Their video games? Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that would complete the picture, wouldn't it? Oh, okay. What are they doing? Drinking wine. Drinking wine from? Both? Yes, as opposed to pouring it out in the cup, they <laughs> drink it straight from the storage basin. They just get a whole a big bowl full, you know, and, and uh, anoint themselves with the finest of oils. <clears throat> you know, they're all dolled up. They've all got their, you know, facial creams and, you know, perfumes and whatever. I mean, man, do you, do you see them? They've got it made. They're very self-focused, very uh, concerned about their own pleasure, their own appearance. And, and, and But the key, I think, is the end of verse 6. Yet they've not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. They're all concerned about themselves. They're all worried about, you know, uh, their, their, their relaxation, their entertainment, their food, uh, their appearance. They don't care about the fact that the nation around them is going to be lost. That describe us? You know, enjoying all these blessings, enjoying all this comfortable lifestyle, but not at all concerned about the ruin of God's people, not at all concerned about spiritual needs. All they could think about is what they want and having a good time and relaxing and enjoying themselves. So they're going to go into exile. They really wanted first place. You know, the foremost of nations versus... Uh, uh, one, and uh, the finest of oils, verse 6, well, he'll let them be first all the way, right into captivity. They'll receive royal treatment, right into exile. <laughs> Man, is this passage not us? It's scary, isn't it? Comments. I like verse 3. I think it's kind of funny. When he says... What do you put far off the day of doom? You know, kind of like, oh, it won't come. And yet they make it come, as they're doing this, to come even nearer as it comes nearer and nearer upon them. The farther they get away from the Lord, things kind of ironic. Definitely. Other thoughts through seven? It's kind of turned back to a note I put down here. Back in 20, verse 24, chapter 5, is 
and we can't be intermittent in our Bible study and such and be doing all this other stuff like they're doing here for just lounging around and being lazy all the time. You no, know, we're even mixing the two. Really. Can't be like, oh, I'm going to get up in Bible study now to get all worked up about it and then just get tired of it and it's like those strings trying to. Absolutely. Self-indulgence doesn't let you seek God. Because when you're self-indulgent, you're just thinking about yourself and just pampering yourself. But it's so much the way we are. Uh, the Amos is the, is the book for our, our generation. Something just hit me was in verse 5 when it says, An event for yourself musical instruments like David. But when the difference was when David made these musical instruments, he used them to praise the Lord. And yet here, they're praising themselves and just getting all the enjoyment out of them. So the contrast between David's heart, which is praising the Lord, and these people who just did it for their own comfort and enjoyment. Good point. Absolutely. Other comments? Alright, this is after lunch. Let's take a five-minute break. Probably be good for us.